This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get right into it. So please, if you can find your seats and... Um, just going to want to make sure that if there are seats available, we do have people um, at the end who helps find uh, seats. We have some ushers because, you know, especially the last session got really busy. Um, just real quick, if you are, if you've been here for, uh, from the beginning, again, if you have the Good News TV bookmark, you want to see the young lady in the back, she's wearing green. She cuts a little piece or basically does a whole, whole punch. And if you Go through all of these, you get a GYC edition canvassing bag, and you get a bunch of canvassing books so that you can canvass to others. You can actually experience the joy of what we do, which, which is literature evangelism. So I just wanted to, again, remind you to make sure to come here and to get a whole punch. This is now going to be the fourth session. So this is going to be the fourth session, and we're going to begin with prayer. So let's go ahead and begin. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can study study about other religions, but most importantly, study your word. We ask that you will be here, be present in our hearts and in our minds, help us to think, help us to be attentive, and most importantly, God, we just, again, ask you to help us to have a greater desire for you and a hatred for the world. That is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. My name is Michael Tuazon. I'm the director of Souls West, Bill Crick, He's the director of Literature Ministries at Central California Conference. He gave the first three uh, pre presentations, and those presentations, if you are coming in, will be on Audioverse. But he talked about how literature is relevant today, and we're going to be shifting a little bit to talk about how literature is relevant to different religions. And my goal is to give us some background about each religion and then to look at some of their literature, if we can, some, some it's worth it, some it's not, especially when we look at Islam tomorrow and we look at Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, it's going to be helpful to look at some of their, their literature. And then if we can canvas them, how can we canvas them or bring them back to the Bible? So I'm going to be trying to accomplish a number of things this afternoon, but before I give you the goals, I thought it would be nice to go through a... Uh, review of what we're trying, uh, what Bill was trying to do in the first three seminars. The first thing that I want us to look at is this quote, and this is found in Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 746. Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 746. Ellen White says, Just before us is the closing struggle of the great controversy, when with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, Satan is to work to do what, everyone? misrepresent the character of God. So right before the end, right before the close of probation, there is one goal that Satan has, and what is that goal? Misrepresent, misrepresent God's character. Cole goes on to say that he may seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Evangelism, page 242, goes on to say, he is a deceiver, he falsifies the character of God. Now, we know these things. We know what Satan did in Genesis chapter 3 when he lied to Eve about God's character. He basically told Eve, 
God doesn't want you to know this, but if you eat this fruit, you're going to become a superhuman being. You'll not only know good, but you'll know evil as well, like us. Satan has lied about God's character from the very beginning. What is our job as evangelists? Why do we exist as a church? What is our job? For others to know the truth, truth, and what is that truth? The truth about God's character. Evangelism, page 330, so here is our job. If you want to know why do we exist on this, in this world, why, what is our purpose in life, this is what it is. Evangelism, page 330, paragraph 3, Ellen White says this. The minister of Christ. Do you consider yourselves the minister of Christ? Amen? It should be all of us. The minister of Christ who is imbued with the spirit and love of his master will so labor that the character of God and of his dear son may be made manifest in the fullest and clearest manner. What are we supposed to do, everyone? Manifest the character of God, right? In the fullest and clearest manner. He will strive, that is talking about the evangelist, he will strive to have his hearers become intelligent in their conception to God's character. It's good to see all of you. Come on in. And then finally, I have the Great Controversy. Great Controversy, page, uh, excuse me, um, Behold Your God, page 13. This is regarding the Great Controversy. So, Especially if you were at last year's GYC, the theme was the great controversy. And of course, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, one of the key doctrines is the great controversy. And so I have this quote, Behold Your God, page 13. The study of God's character is the very what? Subject of the great controversy. So if, if, we, if I was going to ask you, what is the subject? What are the nuts and bolts of the great controversy? What's the right answer? The study of God's character. The whole world lies in ignorance of God as he really is. And we who have lived in the world have been unconsciously influenced by this atmosphere. There is no subject then in which the need to lay aside preconceived ideas and opinion is more critical than this one. Basically, the study of God's character is the most important thing that we can study. And of course, Satan, what has he done? He's tried to falsify God's character. He has deceived billions of people, and he has used literature as his primary plan to indoctrinate people. Right. Remember, Satan uses, remember, Satan tries to counterfeit God in everything, and I find it fascinating that God is all-powerful, God who is all-knowing, God who is not limited by resources. He chose to reveal himself, or he chose to preserve the story of salvation through what means? Through digital copies, through DVDs, through Blu-rays? What did God use as a way to, uh, to um, share who he is? The printed page. Literature. Don't you think that God, who is all-knowing, could have looked into 2015 and said, in 2015, they're going to be using MP4s, Blu-rays. Don't you think that God could have said, I could stream this on YouTube, Vimeo? But God chose one specific way to preserve his story. And what is that? The printed page. So Satan, of course, has a counterfeit. Hindus have the Vedas. Buddhists have the sutras. Muslims have the Quran. Jehovah's Witness, they have the New World Translation scriptures. Mormons have the Book of Mormon. 
So here are our goals. The next three sessions, there's one today, there's one tomorrow, this one that we're currently in, there's one tomorrow, 9 a.m., and there's one sab Sabbath afternoon. We're going to be going over these goals. Number one, learn the basics of the major religions. So I'm going to give you a basic, the basics of Hinduism, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam. So I want to give us the basis. What is the basis for all of them? By the way, we're going to be juicing this material. What I mean by that is it usually takes me about two weeks to cover this, a week to two weeks to cover some of this material at Souls West, and we're doing it in three sessions. So we're going to be going very rapidly, and we're going to be looking at some of the highlights. Number two, we're going to learn how to witness to some of these major religions using their literature. So what if I told you there's a way to witness to a Quran, uh, witness to, excuse me, an, a Muslim using the Quran? What if I said there was a way to witness to a Mormon by using the Book of Mormons? What if I said there's a way to witness to a uh, Jehovah's Witness using the New World Translation? By the way, that's probably one of the only ways to witness to them. They won't listen to you if you use your Bible. Number three, I'm going to give you a few canvassing tips. How to canvas our materials to them. We're going to have a demonstration at the end. I have my friend Giselle. She's going to help me how to canvas Buddhists. And number four, how Adventists as a people, how we have been set up to have an advantage. I call it the Adventist advantage, how we've been set up to reach these people. So I'm really excited. Let's get into it. The first major religious group, Jews. So let me go ahead and talk a little bit about the Jews. The Jews, Judaism is the oldest religious system that we can really trace back to, at least of the five major religions. And the sad thing about Judaism is it's, many people know about it, but it is declining and declining and declining. There's only about 15 million Jews today. There are more Adventists in the world than Jews. There is only one God in Judaism. They're a monotheistic religion. God, who's known as Elohim or Adonai, is a spirit. He's eternal. God is responsible for the world and also for creation. God, uh, no, here's, the, here's the, one of the most fascinating ones. Um, if you don't believe me, you can go to jewfaq.com. Jewfaq.com is a, uh, a website that will give you information about Jews. And it, they have a segment of most frequently asked questions. And you click on that, it has a number of frequently asked questions. And one of, the, one of them is about the afterlife. And uh, it's interesting because on this website, and I've verified it with a few others, Jews, when it comes to the afterlife, they say, we're not sure what happens. Now, how would you like to join a religion, and when you are getting to know what they believe, they say, you say, what happens when I die? They say, you know, we're just not sure. I wouldn't want to be part of that, of that religion either, and, and that's what Jews believe. They, they say they are not sure. They say what we focus on is living on the here and now, and whatever happens afterwards, happens. Their holiest of all writings is the Torah. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses is the founding father of Judaism. What about Jews as a people? The, the Jews as a people. By the way, if you want this presentation, you can have this presentation. Just ask me. I'll give this to you. Bill Crick, is that the same with yours as well? Any one of our presentations that we have, you can have our materials. There is no copyright. It's just free to copy. All right? Jews as a people. There's the Orthodox Jews. 
What are the difference with Orthodox Jews and the progressive or conservative Jews? The Orthodox Jews, they believe that the Torah is the Word of God. They follow all the strict rules when it comes to the Torah. And men and women have to sit separately in the synagogue. Then you have the reform or the conservative Jews. I find it funny they call them the conservatives. They're really not conservative, but, you know, you have the Orthodox and the conservatives. <clears throat> For the, the conservative Jews, they're also, also known as reform, women can be rabbis. Interesting. It's obviously a hot topic at this GYC. Judaism can change to suit different cultures and circumstances. It's what conservative Jews say, they consider the Talmud has as much authority as the Torah. Now, some of you may be wondering, what is the Talmud? The Talmud has 2,711 pages of oral law, legend, and philosophy. Talmud, which means study or learning, and um, uh, something interesting about the Talmud, by the way, most people say that the Talmud is the most difficult of all religious writings to study. That's what a lot of people say. In fact, someone asked Albert Einstein what he would do over if he could live again. And he said, I would study the Talmud. That's what Albert Einstein said. Here's a picture of what a typical Jew would look like. This is a typical Jew right here. Um, this, oh, I didn't read the rest of it, excuse me. Um, There's one other Jew, there's one other Jew I, I failed to mention. The other Jew is really not a Jew, but we, we've hear, we hear of this term, so I'll just explain it, and that's the Messianic Jew. Maybe you've heard of them. Messianic Jews are not Jews. Messianic Jews are basically Christian that celebrates elements of Judaism. Regarding Jews as a people, men, they wear kippahs. Those are known as prayer caps. Jews also wear phylacteries. And those are the boxes that are on their forehead. And most Jews, this is interesting, are not well-versed in the Torah or Pentateuch. They're cultural Jews. So if you're expecting to talk to them about their beliefs, many of them will not know the answer. If you're going to ask them questions about the Torah, you probably know more about the Torah than many Jews do. Just want to give you the heads up. What I mean by that is the average Jew that you're going to talk to in an airplane or something. So here is a young Jewish boy and a rabbi, and that is the prayer cap that he's wearing, the kippah, and that is the phylactery, that is the square box, and inside of that is a portion of the Torah. So you have a small little scroll inside of that box. Now, I'm going to share with you an interesting experience that happened, and this happened a few years ago. I saw my good friend Sean Wycliffe sitting here earlier, and this happened actually with one of Sean Wycliffe's friends, but how do we reach Jews as a people? You know, I find that they're very difficult to reach. But I did have success with this one story, and I'm going to share with you what I did. There was a Jew, and he wanted to know more about what I believe as a Seventh-day Adventist. And I shared with him, of course, I made friends, and, and the nice thing about being Adventist is we have an Adventist advantage with Jews, of course. And I shared a few things with him, and I, we, we became friends, and I showed him a passage of scripture that made him think. At the end of the study, he was pretty amazed, and I want to show that with you, what I showed him. So let's go in our Bibles to John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8, verse 52 through 59. Many Jews, especially if they're a Jewish young person, are open to the, to the New Testament. They're open to Christianity, but they don't know why we believe in the Christ. They, they don't know why we believe in the things that we believe. John chapter 8, verse 52. And I'll wait for the tree of life. I still hear some pages turning. All right, are we all there? Say amen when you're there. Okay. John chapter 8, verse 52. Notice this. John chapter 8 is this confrontational chapter that Jesus has with the rabbis, with the Pharisees. It's this confrontation that they have. And in John chapter 8, verse 52, it's winding down to the very end. The, the Pharisees have accused Jesus of being a Samaritan. They have accused him of being, being demon-possessed. They've accused Jesus of, of being an illegitimate child, of being born of fornication. So this is after all of these verbal insults. John chapter 8, verse 52, notice this. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets... And you say, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art you greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead, whom you make yourself? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I am a liar. I, I, am, I shall be a liar unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Did you get that? How on earth, in verse 56, could Abraham see the day of Jesus when this happened thousands of years ago? This is the question that I posed to my new Jewish friend. And I said, let's go to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And there's a little bit of type and anti-type, and many of the Jews understand symbolism because of the sanctuary and the services. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. If you're all there, say amen. Okay, here's what the Bible says. It says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Verse 2, and he said, take now your son, what does the next part say? Your only, your only son, Isaac. Jesus came down to this world and he was the what? Only begotten son, okay? it's the first point. There's going to be a number of points, and I did these points with this, um, this man who was Jewish. It says, whom you love, and take him into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I tell thee of. By the way, if they're a Jew, they still know the story of Christ. Pretty much everyone knows the story of Christ. I was in a, I can't even remember, some, in L.A., some Asian town with, I'm sure, a bunch of Buddhists and, and non-Christians, but Jesus Christ was everywhere because it was Christmas, right? Verse 3, listen to what it says. And Abraham up rose early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. How many men did Jesus die with? Two. two. How many young men went up with Isaac? Two. 
Now, of course, there's even deeper implications that some, some uh, Jews maybe wouldn't know, but you would all know. And G Jesus, when he came down to Jerusalem, what animal did he come down riding on? A donkey, right? What about Isaac? What, what, uh, what did he ride on going up to the mountain? A donkey. It says, and Isaac, his son, cleave the wood for the burnt offering. What material was Jesus crucified on? That's right, on wood. It says, Clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, what day? Third. third day. So how long did this process take? Three days. How long did Jesus take? His death, burial, resurrection? Three days. It says, Now on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Long story short is I went through this passage, and you can look through some of the, some of the, the rest of them, Genesis 22, 1 through 11. And as I went through this story, and I went through a type and anti-type of do you see how this represents Jesus? When I went when I asked this, the Jewish man, I said, what do you think this story means? Or what do you think this represents? And when I showed him these things, when I went down the list and I said, here are all the similarities of Jesus. This is what he said. Whoa. That's cool, man. That's what he said. This young man into marketing, into business. I don't know what happened to him afterwards. But he, had, he was open and receptive to study that deeper after our conversation. And here's what I realized, because I used to be really into apologetics, and I say used to because I think there's a lot more topics more important than apologetics. I used to love being intrigued with studying different religions and how to reach them, but I, I found that many times they're not ready. And I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to downplay a lot of the information we're going to go over this, this uh, seminar, but I realized that Many of those individuals who are still Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims, Jews, they're not ready to hear the truth many times. If they are, God knows how to reach them. God knows what to do. So what, now I have a new scope, and that is, how can I drop some sort of nugget in their lap so that they think? so that they search. I realize, and Ellen White backs this up, that literature can do far greater things than I can do. I'm humble enough to, to admit that Ellen White is far superior than me, and if I can just get someone to search her writings, or the Bible is far superior than, or, and more eloquent than any sermon I could ever give, if I can have someone read this, I've succeeded. And that's the goal that we have in this seminar, is if we can point them to literature. The Adventist advantage, of course, reaching, to, reaching out to Jews is, what do we have as Adventists that we share in common with Jews? Sabbath, right? Friday night to Saturday night. Not just any type of Sabbath. You, you understand that the rest of you know, the Mormons, they celebrate Sabbath as well. Of course, it's Sunday. And there are other religions that celebrate Sabbath, but they don't go from a sundown to sundown system. Some of them go from a midnight to midnight. 
But when you are talking to a Jew and say, I follow the Sabbath from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, they're surprised. They're thankful that someone appreciates and knows the truth of the Sabbath. Number two, what do we share in common with Jews? Kosher, that's right. We do not eat unclean meat. And, of course, we believe in the law of God, especially the Ten Commandments. The law of God and the Ten Commandments. We emphasize that. And of the Torah, the holiest of all the Torah, the most sacred of all the writings, is the Ten Commandments. Second religious group we're going to go through real quickly, Hindus. So we're going to look at Hindus now. You know, of all the major religions, you know the five major religions, right? Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, right? Those are the five major religions, five major world religions. Did you know of all five major world religions, there is only one religion that we can't, we don't know who the founder is? You know what that is? It's Hinduism. The last two years, I've spent some time in India, and I've learned... I've, I've tried my best to learn as much as I could about Hindus and about Hinduism. And my conclusion was I came out of there more confused than I came into there. <laughs> and if you have any uh, friends or any of you who have come from a Hindu background, you'll know what I'm talking about. I think this is the most difficult group to win to Christianity by far. I'll tell you why. When you talk to an Islam, when you talk to a... <clears throat> a Jew, there is clear differences. This is what I believe, and this is it. When you talk to a Hindu, my wife and I were on a train, and there was a nice Hindu man who, who saw that we were Asian, and he said, I'm trying, to teach my, I'm trying to teach my daughter Chinese. Can you guys hang out with us? And we don't speak Chinese. We're Filipino. <laughs> so we ended up hanging out with him. So we sat, I sat by him. We were talking. And he said, yeah, I'm enrolling her in Chinese. I think Chinese is going to be the greatest next, uh, you know, um, language that we all need to know. And <laughs> he hated to disappoint him, but, you know, we don't speak Chinese. And so we started to do the next best thing is teach him about Jesus and tell him about Adventism. He didn't know that we're evangelists. And so I, I told him about how we're Christians. Now, many times I've told people we're Christians. I've told Muslims I'm a Christian, and that has not worked out so well. But for this man, when I said he, he's, uh, that I'm a Christian, he was excited. And he says, I love Jesus. Now, wouldn't that be good right there? Someone says, I love Jesus. But it sounded a little, I, he was a little too excited for me. That it was a more precautious excitement. I was like, I don't know about this one. Let me hear him. And I realized what, what, what he did and what many Hindus do. You see, they believe in hundreds of thousands of gods. And so when you tell them about Jesus Christ, guess what they do? This is Jesus? Let me add him to the rest of the millions of gods that I now need to pray to. You understand now the complexity of reaching Hindus. Because if you tell them about Adventism, if you tell them about Jesus, now it's, oh, okay, let me add that to everything else. And then you say, no, 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 you have to leave the other things. They're not going to leave the other things. For them, it's about prosperity and good luck and achieving well and, and being someone in life and escaping poverty. And so for them, if praying to Muhammad and praying to Jesus and praying to Elohim and praying to 
you fill in the blank, that will get me a better chance of good luck, of prosperity. Here's what Hindus believe. They're a polytheistic religion, millions of gods. There is no founder. No one knows who founded Hinduism. There are 800 million Hindus in the world today. That's more than all the Protestants. There are more Hindus than more Protestants in the world today. The sacred Hindu scriptures are known as the Vedas. Their main deities are Brahma, who is the creator god, Vishnu, who is the preserver, Shiva, who is the destroyer, and there's one more god who is, I call their extra god that a lot of people, no one told me about how much they worship this god until I went over there, and that is Ganesha, and that is the elephant god. Have you ever seen that elephant god? That is the god of new beginnings and the god of removing obstacles. So for those of you who want to start a new business and there's an obstacle in the way and you don't have finances, you pray to Ganesha. And if you start uh, and, and if you buy a new home and you want, or, or, or just get married, then you're going to worship the god of Ganesha. So Ganesha is a very popular god there. Excuse me? Yeah, they just, for me, it was just the cow. I mean, if you go to India, the cow is the most sacred of all animals. And it's kind of a funny story if you think about it, because you can't do anything about the cow. The cow's in the way of the roads, but you can't do anything because that's the holiest or sacred of most animals. So you're sitting there in traffic, and what's the holdup? And it's a cow. So, I mean, they didn't give me the exact name, but yeah, you will see the cow everywhere. Here's some popular words in Hinduism. Karma. That means the total of an individual's act in this life, which will determine destiny. So you add up all your good works, and that determines your destiny. The law of karma simply states that good comes from good, evil comes from evil. Nirvana is the final stage the soul arrives after all the rebirths. Blissful state free from desire. That's why, as a Christian, there is one word you should never say. How many of you would like to be born again? That's not a good thing for them, because that means you're cursed. Because if you're bad, you're reborn again understand the differences. So never say that you need to be born again. They don't understand that. That's a very bad thing. Yoga, the exercise to discipline the body and emotion. Indians believe, of course, in reincarnation. Thus, they are vegetarian. It is not hard finding a vegetarian restaurant in India. In fact, it's more difficult to find a restaurant that carries meat. Here are some of the differences in Hinduism. God is impersonal. Christianity, God is personal. Hinduism has the con uh, continuous in the sense of being extended from the being of God. So we're extensions of God. Christianity, we're discontinued in the sense of being separate from the being of God. What about humanity's problems? Hinduism, the big problem is ignorance. Christianity, the big problem is moral rebellion. What about the solution? Hinduism, liberation from illusion and ignorance. Christianity, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the personal holy God. What are the means for the solution? Hindus, they strive to detach oneself from the separated ego and seeking to be aware of one's unity with the divine through self-effort. Christianity, one's unity with the divine through self-effort. Trusting in the completed and substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. What about the outcome of the solution? Hinduism, 
merge into the oneness. The individual disappears. Christianity, eternal fellowship with God. The person is fulfilled in a loving relationship with God. What about Jesus? Hindus believe Jesus is one among many gods or an avatar. Christianity, God the Son. Here's the conclusion. Here are some conclusions. Listen to Hindus as they explain their unique beliefs. So if you find a Hindu, listen to them. Here's something that you can do. Share Bible stories that illustrate moral lessons of courage and fidelity. Hindus love hearing stories. In fact, the Vedas, their scriptures are filled with stories. Stories of courage, stories of conquerors. So if you tell them stories of David, if you tell them stories of Esther, if you tell them stories of Daniel, they're going to buy into the Bible. By the way, they have no opposition with the Bible. They think it's a great book. God loves the rich as much as the poor. In Hinduism, they have a system, a history of a system known as the caste system. Another thing that you can share with Hindus is that God wants to eliminate pain and suffering because most Hindus are poor. So giving that hope is helpful for most Hindus. Some things not to do. Don't ask which caste a Hindu belongs to. Number two, don't assume that all Hindus believe or practice the same things. Number three, don't make fun of Hindus' practices, beliefs such as their uh, polytheism, rituals, or temple ceremonies. Number four, don't invite a Hindu over for dinner and eat meat in front of them. You might be eating their grandfather, right? So what's the Adventist advantage when it comes to Hindus? You know what's interesting is that with Judaism, we have an Adventist advantage, the Sabbath. We have the Adventist advantage with them because of we don't eat, um, or we follow a kosher diet. With Hindus, the Adventist advantage is, especially for those of you who don't eat meat, you can tell them, we don't eat meat because we believe God made animals originally for us to love and care for them. No other Christianity group, by large, is vegetarian. And so for them to see that there is a Christian group out there, Adventists, who are vegetarian, they'll be very curious. Why are you vegetarian? We watch American movies. They're at, they're at a, a steak places, right? We see big hamburgers. By the way, if you go to McDonald's in India, there's going to be one famous item missing from the menu. Guess what it is? The Big Mac. You won't find the Big Mac. In fact, someone told me that they tried opening a, uh, a McDonald's over there, and someone said, oh, forget you. We're going to still have our Big Mac. And someone told me that it, the next day, someone bombed that McDonald's. No. That's what someone told me. I haven't found it. I, haven't tr- I tried looking on CNN for that source or anything, but I thought that was pretty fascinating. If you go to McDonald's, you will find more vegetarian options than non-vegetarian options. So McDonald's, by the way, KFC too. If you go to KFC, you have a lot of different vegetarian options there. It's great. I love it. <coughs> if you tell uh, Hindus, you say, we believe in a God who wants us to be vegetarians, they will like that. So that's something I've told them as well. All right, let's go through our last religious group today because we are almost out of time. We only have 12, 13 minutes left. That is Buddhism. Buddhism. Buddhism comes from Hinduism. I don't know if you know that. You know, it's interesting because you really only have 
two major religions. You have Judaism and you have Hinduism. Because where did Islam come out of? Judaism. Where did Christianity come out of? Judaism. Where did Buddhism come out of? Hinduism. So what are really the two main religions before all the other ones? Hinduism and Judaism. Those are the two main religions. Buddhism came from Hinduism, and the founder, of course, is Gautama Buddha. Gautama Buddha was a prince, and he was not allowed to leave the castle for many years. I believe he was in his 30s before he was finally allowed outside into the real world. And he had been in this castle, and he had seen in the castle, of course, everyone has food, everyone's happy. And, and so when he went out to the streets and he saw poverty, he was heartbroken. Gautama Buddha decided to use his money to try to help all the poor. He tried to pay for all the poor to have food. He tried to find places for them. He realized that all the money in the world could not solve world hunger, even in his own country in Nepal. So he was determined to find a solution to the pain and suffering. And at 35 years old, he formed a belief system known as Buddhism. He became the first Buddha, the first enlightened one. There are more than 300 million Buddhists in the world today. And that number is still more than all the Protestants in the world. It's because of Christianity has 1.5 billion, but do you know where a majority of those billions are from? Catholicism, of course. The main beliefs, main beliefs of Buddhism, four noble truths and an eightfold path. And here is the four noble truths. So he took Hinduism to another step. And he basically said, there are four noble truths of Buddhism. Number one, the truth of suffering. The truth of suffering says everyone must suffer. Number two, the cause of suffering. Suffering is caused by selfishness. Number three, selfish cravings can be overcome. After you defeat selfish cravings, you enter into a state of nirvana. And number four, the way to end this craving is called an eightfold path. Now, the eightfold path is very interesting. A lot of the principles of the eightfold path are similar with Christianity. Let me read you some of the, eight, the eightfold path. Number one is right resolve, change your lifestyle. You believe that? Don't you, agree, don't you agree with that one? Changing our lifestyle. Number two, right speech. Don't gossip. Don't lie. Number three, right action. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't engage in unlawful sexual acts. I'm quoting word for word from the Eightfold Path. Number five, have the right occupation. Don't take a job that could harm anyone. Number six, have the right effort. Uh, eliminate evil from your life. Number seven, right contemplation. Make you yourself aware of your deeds and words and thoughts. Number eight, right meditation. Train your mind to focus on things. Here are some key words in Buddhism. Number one, the word Buddha. This refers to the first Buddha. Also, it can refer to one who reaches enlightenment. It's kind of like Christianity we have Christ, but we can also be Christ-like, right? Same thing in Buddhism. There's Buddha, which is Gautama Buddha. But if you are enlightened, you can also be referred to as a Buddha. 
Enlightenment, enlightenment is the realization of all truth as you pass into a state of nirvana. Number three, we have the Dalai Lama, the world leader. And then you have Sangha, and that's the community of monks or nuns. And there are some helpful questions that you can ask. I like talking to Buddhists. I actually engage, like enjoy, uh, talking to Buddhists more than Hindus because Hindus, I know at the very end, they're going to just say, wow, that sounds good. I'll add that to my belief. Whereas Buddhists, there's something tangible, something specific that they believe, and they're going to reject what I say or accept it. So I appreciate that. Here's some questions to ask Buddhists. Can you explain to me the four noble truths? So if you're on a plane and you're sitting by someone who's Buddhist, just ask real quick, hey, can you tell me more about the Four Noble Truths? I want to know more about that. Another question you can ask them is, can you share with me the Eightfold Path or maybe tell me about those, how does that relate to the Four Noble Truths? You can ask another question to a Buddhist and that is, how can one be enlightened? Number four, how do you reach nirvana? So here's some questions you can ask them. Finally, here are some things to remember. Here's some things to remember. Do you want to, don't ask them, same thing with the Hindus, don't ask them, do you want to be born again? Because this means failure. Another thing to remember is they will have trouble with saved by grace. So if you sit by someone, they're Buddhist, and you say, you know, the one thing I love about Christianity is we're saved by grace. They won't understand you. You're speaking another language to them. That concept is so foreign because in their religion, their entire life, they have had to work for everything. Here's another thing that they won't understand. If you share with them Jesus Christ died on the cross, that's going to be difficult for them to grasp because for them, an all-powerful, all-knowing God isn't supposed to die. Think about it. For those of you who love your stories of superheroes, you don't like the superhero to die. Superhero is supposed to save you, right? That is, the, their, their gods in their minds are supposed to save them. And so you're telling me your God died? It's going to be a very foreign concept for them. And another thing to remember, the goal of Buddhism is to reach nirvana and escape rebirths and cease to exist. That's their goal, is to cease to exist. Kind of depressing if you think about it. What's your goal in life? To cease to exist. What I thought I would do in the last few minutes that we have left, I'm going to share with you the Adventist advantage that we have in them, uh, the Adventist advantage that we have that could reach them, and I'm also going to show you how we can canvas a couple of our books. So here's the Adventist advantage. So just to review for Judaism, we have the Sabbath, that's our advantage. Friday night to Saturday night, kosher meats, that's our advantage. Ten Commandments, that's what we share in common with the Jews. Hindus, we share, of course, the vegetarian lifestyle. That's something that appeals to them. What I like to tell people, what I, what I encourage you to say to a Buddhist, is you can say, you know, what, what, what we have in Adventism is we don't have an eightfold path, we have a 28-fold path. They like works, you know, so give them 20, 20 more works they can add to that. So. 
We have a 28-fold path of how you can live a better life, including a health message that abstains from animal products. We have a state of enlightenment called conversion. That's what I call the Adventist advantage. That's what I use. All right, so I'm going to now show you, because we only have five minutes, I'm going to give you a practical experience. I have my friend, Jocelle. She's coming up. And I have found that it's hard for us to teach Buddhists, Hindus. They don't really want to be taught by you. But the books can teach them. Amen. They're a lot more open to the books than to you. So if we can get our books in the door in a way that they would be curious to read it, you've succeeded. So that's our goal. So let me show you a typical canvas. So for those of you who have canvassed before, Giselle's going to do a typical canvas, and this is what a typical rejection looks like, okay? Hi, my name's Giselle. We're students working on a scholarship. I'll let you take a look. This is our piece above the storm. It follows the path of how you can find freedom from worry, guilt, and fear. It has short inspirational stories and beautiful nature pictures. It helps you get to know God better as a friend. Oh, God has... Yes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Buddhist. I'm, I'm Buddhist, oh. so sorry about that. Oh. Yeah, I'm Buddhist. Okay, okay bye. <laughs> That's usually what happens. When I've been with cold porters at doors, usually this is what happens. They've given someone peace above the storm, and the person says... I don't believe in God, I'm Buddhist. The, can, the, the cold porter, then their lights just, you know, they're just deer in a headlight type thing, right? They don't know what to do. <laughs> right? And then, of course, if the guy is Asian, you probably say $10. You know, that's what you end up saying and you end up leaving. That's, that's usually what I've seen. That's usually what I've heard. But now I'm going to try to hopefully give you something a little different, okay? Hi, how's it going? Let you take a quick look. This is our piece about the storm. It follows the eightfold path to peace and enlightenment. Oh, really? Yeah, I know it's a little Buddha right by your door. Do yeah. You, do you have any religious background management? Yeah, I, I'm Buddhist. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, I actually, um, I took a class about the eightfold path. I learned how to become enlightened. <laughs> you know, it's so Oh, wow. It's really interesting. Yeah, what else do you have? Yeah, I can show you. This is actually our desire of ages. Great. It follows a path of enlightened one and shows us how we can reach nirvana. Really? Mm -hmm. They go That's really well together as a set. <laughs> I'll take them. Great. <laughs> I've been to the doors numerous times, and if you change a couple of words around, and if you use some of their language, some of their key phrases, they are so much more open. It's now you're speaking their language. Now, here's the thing. What I've realized, I, we're going to go over this tomorrow. If you come to tomorrow, we're going to talk about Islam. I've spent a number of, I spent uh, some time with Muslims. My mother uh, opened up a medical clinic and an Adventist school in a 100% Muslim population. And she took my sister and I there as kids. And what we were counseled to do and to say is that we cannot tell them that we're Christian. And what I mean by they were Muslim, they were the more extreme Muslims. They're the ones that they, I'm going to share a missionary story of how they tried to kill my mom, in fact. And in this specific, when they found out that we don't eat pork, when they found out that we don't worship on Sunday, when they found out that we don't drink alcohol, you know what these Muslims said? They said, you're a better Muslim than I am. So in other words, what we have, they, they have advised us, even though we're Christians, they have told us, don't say that you're a Christian. Say that you're Seventh-day Adventist. 
if you use certain phrases with people and they have a different picture, what you're doing is closing the doors. And if you can just let people look at a Steps to Christ or a Desire of Ages and use words like the Enlightened One, Eightfold Path, you'll be surprised to see how doors will open up. I've seen this many times. Well, hopefully this was helpful for you. We have to end now because we have another plenary session next. I hope you all come. You're going to be seeing a powerful video of what we did five days before the conference. A number of us were here. It was the pre-GYC conference. And you're going to hear some testimonies of what God did five days before you came to GYC. So let's go ahead and say a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done. Thank you so much that we met you at the cross. Thank you so much because you care for Buddhists, for the Jews, and for the Hindus as much as anyone. You love them just like you love your Adventists, just like you love Christians. And so we ask, O oh God, that you will create a vacuum in their heart, that you will also raise up an interest in people who are sitting here, that we will have missionaries to reach so many of these groups that are unreached. I pray, God, that there will be many in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.